And this semester in RUF, what we're doing is we're going through Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And we said last week that it is Jesus' manifesto, as it were, his manifesto of a Christian counterculture. In other words, his description of what it looks like to be a, a community of people that submit to his kingship. And remember, we said that he is describing uh, the way of the kingdom, not the way into the kingdom. He's not describing, here's all the stuff that you have, now have to do to get in on this thing that I'm about. And what we're going to see tonight, as he kind of further unpacks what this is, is that in order to be an authentic community, it involves having a radically different interaction with the culture around us. So that's what we're going to look at as we look at Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 13. I'll read it for us. It says this. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. Let me pray for us before we consider it together, okay? Let's pray. Father, we do um, ask for your Spirit's uh, wisdom and kindness and mercy. Uh, Father, would you teach us uh, what we cannot learn apart from your help? And so we would beg of you to open up our eyes, to unclog our ears, to soften our hearts, to, so that we would be open to and sensitive to realities that uh, we would not be sensitive to otherwise. So that is our prayer. <clears throat> pray that you would speak to us uh, through your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you know anything about me, some of you know nothing about me, but if you know anything about me, you know that I love zombies. <laughs> and I don't really know why I do, but I'm, I'm, fetish is too strong of a word. That's not the right word. Uh, I have an affinity for zombies. Uh, I'm kind of secretly hoping that the zombie apocalypse happens while while I'm still alive, at least. And I can experience it firsthand. So because I love zombies in the way that I do, not in a fetish sense, but in an affinity sense, I, of course, uh, enjoy the show, The Walking Dead, as some of you do. And if you haven't seen the show, uh, you can leave now. <laughs> but it's a joke. But seriously, if, if you haven't seen it, there's the door. You're, you're not welcome. You're not welcome here. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the show, the premise is basically that the zombie apocalypse has happened. There's a viral outbreak, zombies are everywhere, and it's the story of the, survi- you know, the survivalists, the people who are trying to survive in the midst of this zombie apocalypse that I kind of want to be a part of. But this particular season, uh, these two characters come into this town, as it were. It's like this, it's, it's Woodbury, Woodbury, whatever the name of the town is. It's basically all these survivors who have kind of guarded all the walls with like snipers and, and there's like 70 to 80 people that are kind of doing life in the middle of this zombie wasteland. They're like doing natural, normal life. So they're having like barbecues, they're like having community parties and they're growing flowers and they're trying to do life 
you know, as, as anyone would outside of the zombie apocalypse. And so these two survivors from this other camp kind of wander into this little town, this little kind of mini city that's been constructed. Andrea, who's the blonde-haired kind of Barbie-like character, and Michonne, who's the, the black girl with dreads, and she has like a sword. She's awesome. <laughs> so when they get into this little town, they kind of have this debate between the two of them because Andrea's like, you know, it's dangerous out there. I, it's safe in here. Let's, let's kind of bunker down and stay here. And Michonne is like, I don't like it here. I, I want to get out there kind of where the action is. Maybe we can, you know, solve this zombie problem, but I don't like it in here. Let's go out there. And so kind of the debate that they're having is this. If we stay in here where it's safe, We'll keep our lives, but we won't fix the bigger problem. But if we go out there, we risk losing our lives, and we potentially fix the problem. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because, weirdly enough, there's a very, very similar debate within the church universal right now. A very, very similar debate, which which the million-dollar question for the church right now is, across all denominational lines, is how does the church interact with culture? Because you have one side the Andrea side of the church, that says, uh, well, the church is supposed to be holy, which means separate, distinct, and we're not supposed to have anything to do with the filthy world. So let's not, uh, you know, these, these particular kind of so-called Christians uh, don't do any worldly activities, no bad music, no bad movies, no bad language. We separate from all of that. We only listen to Christian music. We wear Christian clothes. We go to Christian conferences. We drink our Christian coffee. We separate. We withdraw from the culture. That's one side. The other side is the Michonne side, the side that says, well, let's get out into the world and and interact with it. But as a result, what happens is that these particular so-called Christians end up just blending in with the world and end up looking no different and just uncritically embracing and embodying all the values of the world around them. So those you know, so-called Christians live lives on the basis of values like, well, I, I only live on the basis of my uh, highest desire in that particular moment, or uh, I never fight my pride, I never fight sexual temptation, uh, I never fight, I, I never exercise self-control when it comes to alcohol, uh, I never give away my money, I always hoard it, uh, I never uh, ask other people for forgiveness. And so this, this, this particular group uh, privatizes their faith, but then live pub, lives publicly like basically everybody else. And so these people will kind of get Jesus-y on Wednesday and Sunday, but not on Thursday through Saturday. And so that, that's the debate. That, that's the debate that's being had right now. You have these people over here, these particular people who say, uh, let's stay out of the culture and keep our Christian identity and you have people over here that says, let's move into the culture, but as a result, lose their Christian identity. So which one's right? Well, Jesus is going to tell you, show us in this text, that they're both wrong. He's going to offer us a, an approach to culture that is, is not even on the grid. It's, just, it's radically off the radar, as it were. And what he's going to say is, uh, an authentic Christian community has to embody four characteristics. And these are the four characteristics that I want to kind of walk you through tonight. If we're going to be an authentic Christian community, we have to be radically different, radically engaged, radically selfless, and then radically empowered. In case you missed the four, here they are again. 
We're to be radically different, radically engaged, radically selfless, radically empowered. We're just going to tick through these one at a time. First, Jesus says that we have to be radically different. If you look at verse 13, he begins by saying, you are the salt of the earth. And when he says you there, by the way, that word in Greek is plural, you. So he's basically saying y'all. So he's addressing the Christian community. Y'all are the salt of the earth. So what does he mean when he calls the Christian community salt? Well, in our day now, currently, salt is used primarily just to season and flavor food. And that was a function in Jesus' original day, first century Middle East. But the primary function for salt in that day was not to flavor something, but was used as a preservative. You think about, you know, they, they did not have refrigeration back then, so you take a nice kind of pink, red lamb steak and put it on the counter, and it's not going to take very long for that red steak to kind of turn brown and then kind of turn in green and then kind of smelling weird. And so, you know, meat would just rot very quickly. And so what they would do is they'd rub salt into it, and it was able to last a whole lot longer. So what Jesus is saying here, the assumption behind what he is saying is that the natural current of the world is to move towards decay. The natural trajectory that the world is on is moving towards deterioration. And if that sounds initially offensive to you, to hear this out of you know, a religious person's mouth, I mean, just stop and think about it. It's, it's pretty commonsensical. It's actually scientific if you're into the second law of thermodynamics. But think about it for a second. If you put meat or vegetables or fruit out on the counter, eventually it's going to rot. It's going to go bad. Uh, if you do not exercise your body, your bodies are going to break down. Uh, if you do not brush your teeth your teeth are going to rot. If you do not pick up your room actively, it's going to quickly become unlivable, as some of yours are, I would imagine. Uh, if you don't plug in your computer or your phone, the battery is going to die. It, this is just kind of the way that this fallen world works, is everything is moving towards decay, everything is moving towards deterioration. And here's what Jesus is saying. When he says that the Christian community is the salt of the earth, which, by the way, notice that he, this is not a command. He's not commanding the Christians to be something or to do something. He's just stating this is what you are. He says, you as Christians, as the Christian community, you function as a preservative for culture. In other words, what this means practically is that as Christians live against the flow, against the current of the culture's flow, that that actually acts as a preservative agent and stops and hinders and slows down the decay and the destruction that the culture is moving towards. So, if you consider yourself a Christian here tonight, you have to ask yourself some hard questions. Do you live differently from the flow of the culture? Because if you don't, I mean, just look at how the rest of, of, of how verse 13 goes. If you don't, then why do you think you're a Christian? You're, you're essentially worthless salt, according to Jesus' metaphor. Look, look at verse 13. He says it's only valuable when salt is different and distinct. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Here's what he's saying. The Christian community must be radically different, radically distinct from the culture around us. So Christians, is that you? Do you look at all different 
from the people that you sit next to in class, from the people that you live with on your hall? Or do you basically just blend in? Do you relate to alcohol in the same way that the rest of the culture does? Do you relate to sex and hooking up and random makeouts the same way that the rest of the culture does? Do you hoard your time and your money and your gifts? Or do you, are you generous with it? Do you give it away or, or do you just hold it in? You know, you know, when you're a jerk to your friends, do you ever go to your closest friends and ask them for forgiveness and repent to them and humble yourself and say, man, I'm a jerk, I need you to forgive me? Or do you just look like everybody else? Now, I realize uh, this is really hard. Especially for me, especially for someone, uh, maybe you're like me, where you bow down often and worship what other people think of you. And, and so if I'm honest with myself, I, I want to blend in. I want to fit in. I don't want to be like uh, the you know, weirdo Christian. I mean, I'm in a weird position because a lot of times when people that, I, that don't know me ask me what I do for a living and I tell them I'm a pastor... It's like a bomb just kind of got dropped in our conversation, and they immediately start acting weird around me. I mean, I don't, I don't like telling them I'm a pastor. Sometimes I don't even like them knowing that I'm a Christian. But Jesus is saying this. As soon as you become a Christian, you are set at odds with the culture around you. You're, you're, you are in direct contradiction. You're living in a directly different flow from the way that the rest of the culture is going. It's kind of like trying to go up an escalator while the escalator's moving down. You know what I'm talking about? You did this when you were a kid at the mall, right? You're trying to go up the escalator. Can you get to the second floor? Can you get up? Yes. But does it require a lot of work? Yes. If you don't do anything, you just stand there, you go with the flow of the escalator. And what this means for you, that if you consider yourself a Christian, if you're just, if the way that you live your life is just whatever's natural, whatever's popular, whatever just feels right to you, if that's the basis on which you live your life, my guess is that you're not acting as a preservative. You're just, you're just going with the same current as the culture. And you're probably not salt. Sinclair Ferguson, who is a pastor, theologian, author, who I'm reading some stuff to help me through this uh, series, he says this, cease to be different and we cease to be Christians. So that's the first thing that we learn when it comes to interacting with the culture is that we're to be radically different. The Christian community is to be radically different. But the second thing, he goes on, we are also to be radically engaged. Look at verse 14. He says, you, again, y'all, are the light of the world. So what does Jesus mean when he calls Christians light? Because if, if you're at all familiar with the Bible, you know in John chapter 8 that he refers to himself as the light of the world. And in John chapter 1, it describes Jesus as the light of the world, coming into the world, leaving the kind of the spotlight, the glory of heaven to invade this dark world, this dark place that we're in. So what does he mean when he says that we are the light of the world, when he already said that he's the true light of the world? What he means is that the Christian community acts as a, almost like a reflector of what he is about. We mirror image his intention with the world. And what is his intention with the world? To engage it. His whole point here is that the Christian community has to be 
radically engaged with the culture, radically engaged. We, you know, we're not passive. We don't live in retreat mode. We have a forward lean into the culture around us. This is why in verse 14, he says a city on a hill can't be hidden. His whole point is that light is worthless if it's hidden. Again, verse 15, he says nobody lights a lamp and then just stuffs it under a bucket. The whole point of having a light, a light in the first place is so that it exposes darkness. It penetrates darkness. So what does that mean for us, for you and for me, if you consider yourself a Christian? This means that partly the reason why you and I exist is for the sake of the culture, for the sake of the campus, for the sake of the world. I mean, notice what he said. He didn't say you are the salt of heaven. You're not the light of the kingdom. He says you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world, meaning that's kind of, it's partly built into your identity as Christians. This is what you are. Part of the reason why you exist is for the earth, for the world, for the campus, for the culture. So if you do consider yourself a Christian, again, you have to ask yourself some hard questions. Are you even friends with people that aren't Christians? Do you even know any? Do you hang out with them? Are, they, are you involved in their life in any way? Or do you avoid them for whatever reason? Who in your life that doesn't love Jesus are you looking to serve, to minister to, to lay down your life for, to meet their needs, regardless if they ever accept Christ as their personal Lord and Savior? Who in your life are you even willing to do that? Because according to Jesus, that that is built into your identity as a Christian. You know, one of the great things about App. I think is also one of the dangerous things about it. Because the, the, the thing about this school is that there is essentially a golden corral buffet of spiritual opportunities for you. Uh, you, you have a, um, there's just, there's a lot of great Christian campus ministry-y things to do. And so you really could spend five or six nights of your week doing this, like doing Christian-y kind of stuff. You could be involved in two or three different campus ministries and go over here for this reason, go over here for that reason, and be involved in this Bible study and that Bible study and that Bible study. You could spend all of your free time with all of your Christian friends and Crossroads or an e-news and just kind of you know, indulge and gorge yourself on the spiritual buffet that is here at App. And really what it is, in my opinion, is just spiritual gluttony. Because you're just eating and eating and taking and taking. You spend all of your free time with Christians, which is great. The only problem with that is, is that you have now zero impact on the campus around you. You're a light that's just kind of bundled up with other lights under a bucket and has zero impact on the world around you. And Jesus is saying, I think what this means is that if you do consider yourself a Christian, wherever you eat, uh, live, shop, exercise, get coffee, study, your head should be on a swivel. Who, how can I get to know that guy behind the counter that's serving me this coffee? How can, how can I get to know that girl down the hall that I know hates Jesus, but how can I get to know what needs she may have that I can serve her and care for her and lay down my life for hers? For that guy in my class that I know is living a lifestyle that I kind of feel um, opposed to, that I, that I wouldn't approve of, how can I move towards him out of love? See what Jesus is saying. You put these two metaphors together. He says, you are salt, which means you don't blend into the culture. 
but you're also light, which means you don't withdraw from the culture. Remember the, at the beginning I said there's two different approaches to culture, the Andrea and the Michonne approach. One is stay out of culture, keep your Christian identity. The other is move into culture and possibly lose your Christian identity. And Jesus is saying there's a third way. To be involved in the Christian community is to move into the Christian is, is to move into the culture, radically engage it, and all the while preserve and keep your unique Christian identity. That's the call. How do we do that? Well, uh, there's a lot that we could say, and I don't have a whole lot more time to say it, but we're going to do very broad strokes. Third, it means partly to be radically selfless, radically different, radically engaged, radically selfless. Here's where I get this. If you look at verse 16, when Jesus says uh, that we're to do good works, the Greek word that he uses for the word good, it basically means beautiful. Which means what he's talking about, he's not describing the type of good stuff that we should be doing. He's talking about the way that we should be doing the good stuff that we're doing. In other words, he's making a distinction between anybody can just do good, humanitarian, helpful things for people. But he says the Christian community needs to be radically different in the way that we go about doing those good, helpful, humanitarian, loving things for other people. And here's, and here's what it has to look like. It has to be radically selfless. I think this is why Jesus uses the metaphor of salt and light to begin with. I mean, if you think about it, nobody eats something and then comments on how great the salt is. Nobody takes a bite of their sandwiches. It's like, dude, the salt on this. <laughs> Legit. You know, nobody walks into a room and comments how great the light is. You know, the, the light is turned on so that you see something else. Salt is put on food so that you taste something else. In other words, the whole point of the Christian existence is that life is no longer about you. This is not about you. Life for you now involves you living in such a way so that you don't get the glory, but that God does. So that people don't think that you're awesome, but they think God is awesome. Which is really hard for us because every one of us wants to be thought of as awesome. Every one of us wants the credit, wants the glory. That's why we spend most of our lives on the world wide web so that everybody sees everything that we're doing because we constantly want the attention, right? But Jesus is saying... As salt and light, you now live your life in such a way, well, look at verse 16, I'll show you. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to you? No, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In other words, the Christian life is not about you getting attention. It's about him getting attention. It's not about living your life in such a way so that people at the end of the day think you're awesome. It's so that they walk away and think that your God is awesome. So, you have to ask yourself some hard questions. If you consider yourself a Christian. Do you do the Christian thing so that people will notice you? Are you involved in leadership at RUF or another campus ministry or a church? Or do you want to be down the road so that people will think that you're a spiritually mature leader and look up to you? I mean, I wrestle with this all the time because look at what I'm doing. (laughs) All eyes are on me right this second. And so this verse is dangerous for me. 
And I'm having to constantly navigate the motivations of my heart. Do, am I doing this so that you think that God is awesome or so that you think Matt Howell is awesome? And that's something I constantly have to wrestle with and repent of. But that's the struggle for Christians. There's a story that I heard recently that kind of ties these first three points together that I want to share with you. I heard it from a Presbyterian pastor named Tim Keller, who is up in New York City. Um, and he told this story, and basically he says, one day after church, one kind of Sunday morning, uh, this woman comes up to him. He's never met her before. She introduces him, uh, herself to him and says, hey, this is my first time in your church, and I want to tell you about why I'm here. And so she launches into her story. And she says, you know, she worked for this big, like, I don't remember what kind of company it was in New York City, big sort of company. And um, she was working on this project and, and just like totally made a huge error in it, totally screwed the project up, blew it. And it was so bad that if her kind of upper, upper ups had found out about it, I mean, she just would have kind of been terminated on the spot. And so her um, kind of immediate supervisor, the boss right above her, uh, took the hit. He took the blame for her kind of massive screw up. And so, you know, according to her, he had had enough history and capital and credit with the company so that it was not going to destroy his career, but it did, it did set him back. It, it did damage him. It did hurt him, but his, his job was still intact. Her job was still intact. And so she comes to her kind of immediate supervisor boss, and she comes to him and says, why did you do that? I mean, I, I've had plenty of bosses in my life take credit for my work. But nobody's ever taken the blame for my work. Why would you do this? And he said, well, you know, it's no big deal. Just I'm glad you're here. And he kind of brushed it off. And she's like, she's pressing him. Why? Why? She's, you know, tell me, tell me. He's like, okay, okay. So eventually he says, okay, but because you've pressed me and pushed me, I'll I'll tell you. And he says, I'm a Christian. And my Savior, Jesus Christ, took the blame for my screw-ups. And so now in response to what he's done for me, I, I try to live my life for other people like that. And in the short run, it really sucks and it really hurts. But in the long run, it, it just kind of seems to—it kind of seems to work out. And she says, "Where do you go to church?" <laughs> she showed up the next week, and, and I think that is an amazing story because here's a man. This guy was ra- was radically distinct from the natural current of the culture because the natural impulse is she screwed up. I don't want her screw up to affect my career. I'm not gonna have anything to do with it. Radically different mindset. But yet he was also radically engaged. He entered in. He he didn't just sort of let her screw up, kind of blow up her career. He saved her career. And he was, uh, you know, radically selfless about it. He was not showy about it. My guess is he probably didn't tweet about it afterward. So here's the question then. How in the world do we have, where do we get the power and the ability to live like this, this radically different, this radically engaged, this radically selfless? Well, I'll wrap up here, and I'll be briefer here. The answer to this is in verse 16. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your boss in heaven, your co-pilot, your homeboy in heaven. No. He says to your father. In fact, this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus refers to God as father. If you've been around the Bible, been around the church, don't let the familiarity of that language water this down. Because at the time, nobody talked like this. And this blew people's 
categories. For, for these people to hear Jesus refer to the transcendent, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent king of the universe as Papa, as Daddy, it, it just kind of destroyed, just blew up their brains. They didn't know how to process this. This is, this is radical to hear what Jesus is saying. And here's what he's suggesting. What he's suggesting is that you will never live distinctly. You will never live actively engaged and selfless as a Christian if you view God as some tyrant that you're trying to appease. Or if you view God as some sort of distant genie in the sky that every now and then kind of grants your wishes. You will never live like this, for very long at least, unless you first see him and know him and experience him as father who intimately intensely, personally, particularly loves you. And so how can you know that this God, this Father, loves you like this? Well, the way that you can know is the fact that the Sermon on the Mount is here to begin with. Because the fact that the Sermon on the Mount is here to begin with means that Jesus has come. Jesus, who has left the glory of heaven, has actively engaged with this dark world to come and to tell us these things. Furthermore, the ultimate expression of this, of course, is at the cross. At the cross, we see Jesus as the true salt of the earth, utterly distinct, utterly utterly different, and yet trampled and thrown out at the cross. At the cross, we see him as the true light of the world, actively engaged, and yet snuffed out at the cross. We, we see him being radically selfless, giving away his life so that you may have life. Romans 5 tells us, a book later in the Bible, tells us that the way that you can know of God's fatherly, tender love and care for you, it is demonstrated at the cross. And when you get that, when you relate to God as father through the avenue of Jesus... This is what transforms you to live like this. I'll tell this um, final story and then I'll be done. I'm sure for most of you, many of you, some of you, I don't know, some of you watched the movie Elf when you went back home for Christmas break, which you should have because it's the greatest Christmas classic movie of all time. (laughs) Is that a little hyperbolic? Okay. But if you're unfamiliar with the movie Elf, uh, you can leave now. But uh, if you're unfamiliar with the premise of Elf, which I don't know how you would be, but let's just assume for both of you that don't, I'll explain it to you. The premise is, is that Buddy the Elf, who is this man who thinks he's an elf, he invades New York City from this other world. And he comes in to try to find his dad, and he finds his dad who works in kind of this big uh, kind of adver- or a book, children's book thing in New York City. And he loves his dad with such an intensity and such a, uh, in such a way that it really does kind of wreak, you know, wreak havoc in the dad's life. He's, he's annoying. He's causing a mess. He, he's um, screwing up his family, his job, his life. This, this invader comes in and is loving him to such a degree, uh, it's just kind of making a mess of his life. And so, you know, Buddy the Elf's like jumping on the Christmas tree. Um, he's eating the spaghetti with the syrup. He, he gets in a fight with like the... Um, the children's book, a kind of guru genius, you know, like he's an angry elf. You know that one? <laughs> he's causing a mess of this guy's life, but what happens in the end? The dad is so melted by the love of his son 
that, that he, his life is transformed. He recommits to his family. He, he's liberated from his workaholism, and he's able to say no to his job and yes to his kids, yes to his family. Uh, you know, he's kind of electrified with the surge of joy at the end so that he's even singing at the end of the movie. And in fact, he's used as one of the agents that ends up saving Christmas, which I've realized, having watched some Christmas movies over the break, every plot of every Christmas movie hinges around saving Christmas. <laughs> but he ends up saving Christmas, and what happens is that his life is restored, it's redeemed, it's made whole again. Jesus is this invader that comes in from this other world, this other place, to actively engage with this world and to actively and intimately engage with your life. And if you will let his love towards you melt you and move you, you will be transformed in the same way. You will be transformed to such a degree that you will no longer interact with the world in the same way, but that you'll, you'll be radically different from it. But yet, not withdrawing from it, you'll, act, you'll actually want to move towards it out of love. And you'll do so in a way that's radically selfless. Only the Father's love and grace expressed in the gospel will empower you to live like this. So the question for you is, do you know the Father? Do you have a relationship with him? If you don't, Jesus tells you the way that you get to the Father is through me. You put your faith, you put your trust in Jesus, and and your connection with God is formed, your heart is melted and moved by his love and his grace, and you're transformed from the inside out. Do you know him? That's the question. Let me pray. Father, would you, with your fatherly, tender care, blow up whatever obstacles we may have that's preventing us from embracing you, uh, maybe for the first time, or, or running back and embracing you once again? Father, I know some of us in this room have just sort of jumped in headfirst into the the current uh, of the way that the world is moving. Um, Some of us have just indulged in sex. Some of us have just indulged in porn and indulged in drink and indulged in um, spending too much money shopping, indulged in um, the way that we think about our body and our weight and uh, father some of us have just kind of thrown ourselves so headlong into the current of the culture that we feel like there's no way to pull us out so would you by your grace pull us out and redeem us and restore us with your love with your grace knowing that you do not come after us to shame us but you come after us to embrace us and father i pray that that would move us to the depths of our core so that we would no longer fear We would no longer be um, uh, thrown into that current, but that we would be liberated from the misery of that and freed to submit to you as our king once again, to be made whole, restored, and to live a life of service for others. And that's our prayer. We would pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.